Broadcasting live from the exhaust-choked streets of Autopia, it's Contemporary Inc. with your host, me, Bill Blair. Let me be the first to welcome you back. It's mid-April 2023, and we've got a whole lot of news to share. The rules have been released. The official Disney Lorcana trading card game rules were released as a single PDF, and it looks like the kind of thing that would be folded up and inserted into like a starter deck or one of those uh, large bundle boxes that uh, you're probably going to see with this kind of a deal. I have to say that it's a rather lengthy and detailed document, and initially I was at an impasse on how to deal with it. Because I could just tell you that it makes sense and that you should play. Or I could actually read the rules to you. And for anybody who's ever pulled out their phone while a friend reads the rules to a rather complicated board game, this might be kind of boring. But for those of you with sight issues or even learning differences, this might be a valuable resource in getting into this game. I personally had to read over this document several times to get all the subtle nuances, and it would have been a lot easier if I had someone to dictate it to me. So in that vein, I'm going to do my best to go item by item through this PDF for you so that together uh, we can learn how to play. I don't think it will take too long, no more than a standard podcast length. And even if you're familiar with the rules by now, I hope we can discover something new together. So at first it says, what kind of game is this? I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here. There's no sense in reading it verbatim. But basically, Lorcana is a strategy game where each player has their own deck. So we kind of knew this from the beginning. Uh, it says that you can play with one of their pre-made decks, obviously. One of those decks that you've made changes to through the purchase of booster packs, or building a deck entirely on your own. I'm looking forward to that. In a game like this, you are allowed to do things that aren't normally part of every turn. And I think that just means that there are cards that are going to break the rules, bend the rules, and that cards that have those special abilities are going to be marked as such. The next segment lays out the three major types of cards, characters, items, and actions. The characters are the cards that we've seen thus far. Cruella de Vil, Captain Hook, Mickey, the Brave Little Tailor. They're referred to as character glimmers, and it says that you're going to send them on quests and into challenges, and that some of them have special abilities. So this glimmers and quests is new. Items is interesting. The example they gave is a, a dinglehopper, from the Little Mermaid movie, and, and we would normally call that a fork. It's an item, and its power is to straighten hair. The thing that looks like a tap symbol removes up to one damage from a chosen character. Okay, so, you know, gives you a, a little healing. That's nice. The final type of card is the action card. Actions give you a one-time advantage and are then discarded. And the example they give here is dragon fire uh, and that action banishes a chosen character so i guess we're going to remove a player from the field after that it includes songs which okay disney a lot of songs 
A song is a type of action. You can play one just like any other action by assuming paying for it using the, the symbol in the, the top left. Or you can you can have somebody sing it. That's interesting. Um, so your characters can sing songs. How novel. Game overview. In this game, you race to locate pieces of lore scattered across Lorcana and collect them for safekeeping, summoning glimmers of Disney characters and items along the way to help with your quest and hinder your opponents and challenge opposing characters. With the right strategy and a bit of luck, you can preserve your collected lore against future threats. So I think this is the, the second time they've mentioned lore, and I'm curious if this has something to do with those mysterious pips on the side of the cards. It seems to be important. There's also a note on learning how to play. It, it does recommend having a friend teach you, which is a great way to learn. Uh, there's also a QR code if you wanted to scan that with your phone. Uh, maybe there's, there's some YouTube videos or something they want you to watch. And finally, winning. The goal is to be the first player to gain 20 or more lore. Some card abilities give you lore, but the most common way to gain it is by playing characters and sending them on quests. Okay, whenever I'm reading through rules like this, getting down to the nitty-gritty of how do you win is probably the most important thing in like solidifying the purpose of the game in the player's mind. So lore, you got to get 20 of it. Interesting, Magic the Gathering has 20 life. 20 seems like a good number. It probably keeps the game going for, you know, a couple of minutes. The next is parts of the card. And I think this is going to uh, make or break some of the guesses that we, we made uh, a couple of months ago. So the first thing is the cost. And that's in the top left-hand corner. There's a number surrounded by a symbol that I thought looked like a rose. And that's, in this case, Sorcerer Mickey a cost of four, and the inkwell icon apparently surrounds it. So it looks like there are two separate things going on here. Around the cost hexagon, put your inkwell. Okay, so apparently if a card has, all cards have a hexagon, but not all cards have an inkwell. We'll have to be on the lookout for that. Character name, and it, it points out that there's, Two names, really. I mean, he's always going to be Mickey Mouse, but in this example, he's Wayward Sorcerer. To that end, you can have up to four. I'm going a little ahead of myself here. You can have four of any of the subname. So four Wayward Sorcerers. Can't have five, but you could have more Mickeys in your deck. So you could have four Mickey Brave Little Tailors, four Wayward Sorcerers. Next to that is the ink type. That was a little icon that I kind of glossed over because it, it didn't look like much of anything, but apparently that uh, breaks down the different ink colors, and we'll get into that in just a sec. Next to that is the Dreamborn Sorcerer, the sort of banner, and it calls that a classification. Apparently, texts, effects, and abilities will call out those sorts of things, Dreamborn, Sorcerer, etc. Uh, abilities and effects. The card's rules on actions, these are called effects. Uh, on characters and items, most abilities have story-based names. So on this example, you're going to get Animate Broom or uh, Ceaseless Warrior. 
And then there's a shout out to common abilities like rush. I think we saw that before. Uh, and it's going to tell you how that how that works. This is something I've noticed with re-releases of classic Magic the Gathering cards. They'll have a complete breakdown on how like trample or banding works. Whereas back when I started playing, it just said trample or banding. And you were supposed to know what that meant. I think this is great for new players and also people that just can't remember all the rules. It's fine. Lorcana's here for you. Getting back to that ink symbol, there are six different colors of ink in the game. Amber, amethyst, emerald, ruby, sapphire, and steel. I find it interesting that they went with precious gems and then steel. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody wearing steel jewelry before, but it's an interesting look. We were right on the nose with the strength and defense. They call it strength and willpower here, but that's the spiked ball and shield icons with a number inside. And then the lore value. And the lore value is the mysterious pips on the side of the character cards. So you're going to be sending your characters out on quests and they'll come back with lore. Now, I'm sorry, I've read through this a couple of times, but I cannot remember if you get the lore back the moment they go questing or if you get that at the start of your next turn. This could be interesting because characters that go out questing are then vulnerable to attack during your uh, opponent's next turn. There's also a rarity. So those of you who are, are collecting and trading are going to be interested in this. We've got a common, a rare, uncommon, super rare, and legendary. So those of you opening packs at home will know immediately if you've got a hot card on your hands. Next is setup. Each player needs their own deck. They'll also need a damage counter and a way to track how much lore you have. Or both of those things come with a starter deck. You want to shuffle your deck. Set your lore tracker to zero. Draw seven cards from your starting hand, and then look at the cards, but don't look at anybody else's. The mulligan system in this game is interesting because it's the player that decides if their hand is adequate to start playing. They offer you the option of altering your starting hand. Basically, it breaks down to allowing the player to make the decision if they don't have any cards with inkwell icons. That is to say cards that they can turn into ink, or that there's too many cards with a high cost that they wouldn't be able to play early in the game, then you're able to put any number of those cards from your hand at the bottom of your deck without revealing them, and then drawing cards until you have seven in your hand. Next, it goes in to say that there's two phases of play. I always find this deceptive, because anytime there's only two phases of play, each one of those phases has like a million parts. These seem pretty intuitive to anybody that's played a card game before, but might seem a little daunting to people new to the hobby. The first thing we're going to do is ready any exerted cards. Exerted is the same thing as tapping in Magic the Gathering. You're basically going to turn your card 90 degrees. I'll probably turn mine to the right or clockwise. Set, check for effects that happen at the start of your turn and follow their instructions. 
So we're going to have to find some cards that have effects like that. Then there's the draw part of the beginning phase, where you draw a card from the top of your deck. The first player skips this on their first turn. Then there's the main phase. Once per turn, a player can put a card face down in the inkwell, as long as that card has the ink symbol on it. Additionally, you can take actions listed below any number of times in any order you want, and this allows you to take full advantage of what the cards have to do in combinations with other effects. So I think people that are familiar with a really long hand of Pokemon can attest to the kinds of combos that people are going to be putting together here. These actions include playing a card, using a character ability that doesn't require them to exert themselves, use an item ability, take an action with a character that's been in play since the start of your turn, including questing, challenging an opponent's exerted character, and using an ability that would require them to exert. And I think this is going to be the bulk of the action of the game. Questing is going out to get that lore. You need 20 to win the game, and most cards only give you 1 to 3. So you're going to be going out at least 7 or 8 times. Challenge an opponent's exerted character. So it's not just a race to see who can get the most lore first. It's also a race to hamstring the opponent. Anytime an opponent sends a character out on a quest, they become vulnerable to an attack. This is your turn to attack them. I don't think there's any, any ability to attack on the first turn because your opponent wouldn't be exerting anything. And then there's using an ability that requires them to exert themselves. And I think all of these are off the table, again, for a character that you played this turn as you have to wait for the ink to dry. In a little sidebar here, it says, what are ready and exerted cards? Some of the rules and card effects require you to exert or, and then there's that little, again, well, we'll call it the exert symbol from now on, a card in play. To exert a card, turn it sideways. Once a card is exerted, it can't be exerted again until it's been readied by a game rule or card effect. To ready a card, simply turn it back upright. Remember to ready all exerted cards at the beginning of your turn. Your inkwell is where you put ink cards face down. You'll use these cards in your inkwell to pay for the cost of cards that you play from your hand. So it's kind of like the land and energy cards from Pokemon, but a little different because any card in this game can theoretically be played or as long as it has the ink symbol on it, can be used as ink. So if you pull that Maleficent Dragon early in the game and there's just you absolutely need that ink to play some other mid-game cards, you can sacrifice your end-game ability to get that little extra boost early on. You may put a card from your hand into the inkwell once per turn. The card chosen must have an inkwell icon. That's the rose-shaped thing on the outside of the hexagon in the upper left-hand corner. The more ink cards you have, the more you'll be able to do. To put a card in your inkwell, show the card to the opponent and put it face down in your inkwell as ink. Every card in your inkwell represents one ink, no matter what's on the front. So that broom that's worth one and the Maleficent that's worth like eight all turn into the same ink when they go into the inkwell. 
Cards put in your inkwell stay there for the rest of the game. Once you put a card in your inkwell, nothing on the front matters, including the cost or the ink type. It's just ink. Playing a card. Playing a card just means taking it from your hand and putting it face up on the table. Each card has an ink cost in the hexagon in the upper left-hand corner. To play the card, you must exert that many cards in your inkwell. So exerting a card in play and exerting a card in the inkwell is the same action. You just turn it 90 degrees. Uh, when you play a character card, put it on the table above your inkwell. Characters enter play in a ready position, but you can't do anything until your next turn. Hey, you need to wait for that ink to dry. When you play an item card, put it on the table above your inkwell. Unlike characters, you can play that item right away. When you play an action card, do what that card tells you to do. Then put the card in your discard pile. Always put cards into the discard pile face up so everyone can see them. Songs. Now this is interesting. Songs are a kind of action card, but there's a special rule that gives you another way to play them. Each song says a character with a cost of X or more can exert themselves to sing this song for free. If you have a character that's listed uh, with a cost of that or higher, you can exert that character to play the song card instead of paying the ink cost to do it. Using this approach still counts as playing a card. Rules for when you can exert a character still apply, of course, so characters can't sing songs the same turn they come into play. To quest with one of your characters, exert them and gain lore equal to their lore value. Remember, you can't quest with a character the same turn you play them. Okay, well I guess that answers the question of when do you get the lore? And it's right away. Questing is how you win the game, but sometimes you need to slow your opponent down. This is where challenging comes in. First, exert one of your characters to send them into a challenge. Then choose an opponent's exerted character to challenge. So you don't attack the opponent, other player. You attack cards that they have in play, specifically. You can't challenge a ready character, but characters in a challenge deal damage. Look at each character's strength and put that many damage counters on that character. So one of the things that I was curious about with this game was whether or not damage was going to be permanent. And it seems like it is. There doesn't seem to be any mechanic for readily taking damage off of, of characters. Though, you know, that's probably for items later on. Characters damage each other in challenges and some card effects deal damage as well. Whatever the source, damage counters stay on the character until an effect removes them or the character is banished. A character is banished when they have damage counters on them that reach or exceed their willpower, the shield thing. Put that character card in the player's discard pile. The following example is very visual, and I'll try to explain it without reading the, the text because it's, you know, nonsensical. But as two characters come into contact with each other they trade damage and uh, in the example given here captain hook deals three damage to donald who can only take three damage so he is banished donald deals two damage to captain hook who has a uh, a willpower of four and can take that damage now he will keep that damage until he's banished or he's healed somehow there's no way to remove it through the regular game rules. Using abilities. 
Many items and characters have abilities you can use during your turn. These normally affect other cards in play. Cards in the deck, discard, hand, or inkwell aren't in play, so aren't affected by other cards unless the card says so otherwise. I think what they've done here is they've given us a, a nice framework with these rules, and then the cards themselves are going to riff on them over time. If a card ability has a cost that appears before its effect, then the two are separated by, the, by a dash. The cost might include an exertion cost, that turning symbol, or an ink cost, the hexagon shape, a text that explains the cost, or a combination of any of these. You must pay every part of an ability's cost in order to play that ability. I think that goes without saying, but I can definitely see instances where, where players might think, oh, well, I only have to do one of these things to get this card out instead of having to satisfy all these other requirements. It, there's an example. Beast Mirror has the ability Show Me, which reads, exert and uh, pay three ink. If you have no cards in your hand, draw a card. On your turn, you play, may play this ability by exerting the card and paying three ink, by exerting three cards in your inkwell, that is. Because the mirror is an item, you can even play this ability on the same turn it comes into play. So I think that means that these items are permanent, maybe? I'll have to look that up. Ending the game. The first player to reach 20 lore wins. If your deck runs out of cards, you lose the next time you would draw a card. So this is interesting. I definitely remember the, the, the D20 being kind of ubiquitous back when I was playing. Everybody had one to keep track of their their life. Unless, of course, your deck of magic cards allowed you to gain more life than 20. In which case, you might have, you know, a couple of D20s hanging around just to uh, show off. I think this next bit just seems like they threw it in to fill up space. But it's saying that Lorcana is a fun two-player game, but there's nothing stopping you from playing it with three or more players. The game rules remain the same, except at the end of a player's turn, the player to the left takes the next turn. Whenever an ability requires more than one player to do something at the same time, start with the player whose turn it is, then proceed left until each adjacent player has done their action. It's been a while since I've played a multiplayer game of anything, and it's certainly not a thing with Pokemon. But, you know, maybe you're going to go down to your local game store, which you totally should, support local businesses, and play a game with three or more people. It might be fun. And now we get to building a deck. I plan on getting enough cards to build a couple of decks through boosters, but I think there's also going to be starter decks. So let's just say I'm going to be heavily invested in cardboard in a couple of months. But as far as making that deck yourself, it's fun. I remember, you know, coming up with, with in new and fun things. This is before the I had the internet you know, novel ways to use cards together. Uh, your deck has to have at least 60 cards. So it's a minimum of 60 cards, though you could theoretically have more if you want to poke a couple more in there. And the hobby might decide that 100 cards is the ideal number. I don't know. We'll find out. Your deck cannot contain more than four copies of a single card. I think this is probably you now ubiquitous across trading card games. And it makes sense. You know, it keeps people from spamming one particular card. So as an example, 
you can't have more cop more than four copies of Elsa Snow Queen in your deck, but you could have four copies of Elsa Snow Queen and four copies of Elsa Queen Regent. Your deck can only contain one or two inks, so none of these rainbow decks that you know you you see occasionally. I don't think they really work. I'm curious to see how the different colors gain different personalities. You know, what does a steel deck look like? What does a ruby deck look like? And here we have the turn order at a glance. So we're just going to go through this nice and slow. There's two phases. There's the beginning phase where you ready all your cards. You set, waiting for any effects to happen, and then draw a card. So just basically starting your turn. And then going into the main phase where you can... Pick and choose what you want to do in any order. So you could uh, exert a character. You, well, let's just read the list. Once a turn, you can add a card to your inkwell. You can play a card. You can activate an item. You can play a character ability that doesn't require it to exert itself. When a character uh, that was in play during your setup phase, that is to say the beginning of your turn, you can send them out on a quest. You can challenge an exerted character, or you can use an ability that requires it to exert itself. So I think Ravensburger's made quite a fun little game here. It's not super complicated, but it's also got a lot of really good art, and I think it's going to bring a lot of new people to the hobby. We've seen such a resurgence in interest in the last, I don't know, three or four years in collectible card games, and this is just going to bring a whole bunch of new people into the hobby. I'm really excited. Who knows? They may start with Lorcana and then branch out, or we could see Lorcana turn into the decade-spanning juggernauts right up there with Magic and Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh. And that's it for the rules. Uh, we don't have much else to report on right now. I'm we're going to have to see some more cards. I've seen some stuff popping up on the internet. You know, Reddit's got a lot of stuff, uh, but I don't trust it, really. I'm going to wait until I get cards from legitimate Ravensburger or Disney sources before I start talking about them. One thing I don't want to get into with this show was wild conjecture or hype. We're all friends here, and I don't need clickbait to sell records. So thanks for tuning in. See you later.